All right. Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm Sergio Verdu. I am uh, uh, delighted to uh, welcome uh, everyone to tonight's uh, Spencer Trask Lecture. This uh, series was founded in 1891 with a gift of $10,000 from Spencer Trask of the class of 1866 for the purpose of securing the services of eminent men to deliver public lectures before the university on subjects of special interest. Spencer Trask was a successful financier, and he was actually one of Thomas Edison's original backers. And he was killed in a railroad accident in 1909. So previous lecturers in this series um, have included Niels Bohr, Arnold Toynbee, T.S. Eliot, and Bertrand Russell. So uh, it's, a, it's a great pleasure to welcome Bob Lackey to Princeton. He's one of the undisputed pioneers of digital communications technology. Uh, and his research at Bell Labs uh, in the 1960s and 1970s is uh, still the basis for signal processing implemented in today's modems. Uh, Bob Lackey is an engineer who is known worldwide for his writing and speaking about technology and society. He has led premier research laboratories in, tele in telecommunications over the last several decades, first at Bell Labs and then at Telcordia Technologies, where he was corporate vice president of applied research. Uh, Bob Lackey is the author of many technical papers and also of several books, including uh, a book uh, called Silicon Dreams and another uh, volume called Lucky Strikes Again. Uh, most engineers uh, know him best because of the monthly com columns he writes for Spectrum magazine over the last 20 years uh, on engineering, life, and technology. Uh, he has received a number of uh, major awards, including the prestigious Marconi Prize and also the Edison Medal from the Institute of Electronics and Electrical Engineers. So let us warmly welcome Bob Lackey to Princeton. Thanks very much. It's a, uh, I don't like to be, to hear all these names. <laughs> And they say, who's this guy? <laughs> um, it's an honor to give this lecture, and uh, I, I appreciate that honor, and I appreciate you coming out tonight to hear it. Uh, so I hope to make it worth your while. It's a subject that uh, will be non-technical, and uh, it's something that all of us know something about, um, perhaps as much as I do about it, but uh, that won't stop me from going through my talk. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, broadband access. I usually ask audiences uh, how many people have broadband access. I won't ask it because, all right, put up your hands. Does anybody not have it here? I got one, two, okay, three, okay. Beanie, you don't have it? <laughs> Old-fashioned, okay. But, I mean, um, I would assume that all, all of you would have it, but... Uh, I'm going to first look at some statistics about broadband access in the U.S. and the world. Uh, I'm going to put it in the context of what's going on in uh, the uh, telecommunications industry. Um, and then I'm going to uh, talk about the different technologies that are used for it. 
and the future of those. And then I want to talk about what are we going to do with all this stuff. And that probably will be uh, most of the talk, actually. So let's uh, begin with um, uh, looking at the uh, trends in broadband in the United States. Uh, we, uh, a couple months ago, crossed the point where more than half of the people who access the Internet now in the United States have broadband. Um, sort of a notable thing. This is Nielsen data, and we're headed right up the curve to where most people who do access the Internet will have broadband. Uh, if you look at the uh, speed uh, trends, uh, you can see broadband coming across and uh, taking over uh, the, uh, the majority of, of connection speeds uh, in, in the U.S. Now, if we look around the world and see how does this rate with the rest of the world, um, first, if we just look at Internet access itself, not necessarily broadband, but who is the most connected in the world? Uh, this is the kind of uh, list that you get. Sweden, uh, Hong Kong, United States, Iceland. They've got nothing else to do there, I guess. Um, and Netherlands, et cetera, on, on down the list uh, that the, with per capita Internet penetration. But if you look at broadband uh, penetration, Korea, South Korea leads the world with uh, a very high uh, percentage of, uh, of, of broadband uh, access followed by uh, China, uh, uh, Canada, Iceland. And the U.S. on this list is 13th, but people right now believe the U.S. is 15th in the world in, uh, in broadband access. And, you know, it's not a position where we uh, would be really proud of, of what we had. And then if you look at the technologies that are used for around the world for broadband access, uh, you'll see that the... Um, uh, DSL, the uh, connected by your phone lines, is about two to one favored over uh, cable. Now, in the United States, it's exactly the opposite. How many people here have cable broadband? A lot of people. How many DSL? I would say it's 60-40 here, cable, um, pretty much indicative of the U.S. at large, but twice as many cable subscribers as, as, as DSL. But around the world, it's exactly the opposite. Now, why uh, two questions that I want to just touch on. Why are, we, why are we the only country in the world where there's more cable than DSL? And why are we 15th in the world in broadband access? So one slide on each of these. First, um, why do cable modems outnumber DSL only in the United States? Well, um, for one thing, uh, countries that have um, uh, that are really wired with DSL, like Korea, have dense housing. It's a lot easier to do that with uh, DSL. But um, the United States had a pre-existing cable infrastructure, um, and then I think maybe some of the biggest reasons that the telco executives were really slow to take this up. They were they were really. Um, Afraid. For one thing, DSL cannibalizes the services they have right now. So when people got DSL, they say, well, you know, I don't need that extra telephone line that I used to have. And so they take that away. And so actually, um, they were losing money on every subscriber they had. They made it up in volume, but they uh, basically were losing money for a long time. I understand now that they are making money on it, but for a long time they, they lost money on it. But so meanwhile, the... The uh, cable industry was very aggressive because cable, this was new business for them. And uh, 
far from losing money, they made a lot of money in this. Because when you think about a cable system, you've got 100 channels, and they take one channel and charge as much for that one channel as they charge for all the rest of them, and they don't have to share that money with Hollywood. So, I mean, this is a win. They just use what they have. They devote one hundredth of their resources. They don't have to pay anybody else for it. They don't have to buy content. And so so it's really a win for them. Um, Now, there was a standard for cable modems, and whereas DSL, there were different standards, and, you know, you couldn't, it just didn't plug together. So that was another reason why cable took off here. And then finally, the FCC and the Telecommunications Act um, got in the way as to the telcos were afraid that if they put out this kind of service, they would have to um, to uh, unbundle the loops and give them to the third party, the uh, the CLEX, the competitive local exchange carriers. Uh, that fear didn't turn to materialize very much, but at first it was something that they, they really didn't want to do because they said, if we have to put this DSL out, we're going to have to let these, these CLEX come along and, and take our customers away, and they didn't want to do it. So the other um, question about why are we 15th in the world, some of the reasons are the same. Uh, the geographic dispersion of the population in the U.S. makes it a lot harder to get broadband around the United States than other countries. Um, lack of government initiatives. Uh, countries like Japan and Korea had government programs that really pushed broadband, and we never have that. Both presidential candidates uh, this election um, uh, had an issue that they were going to push broadband, but everybody sort of yawned about it, and it never, never went very far. But we never have had a real government initiative. And on the contrary, the regulatory policies have, in, in many ways, uh, uh, held this back. And um, we don't have some of the cultural drivers that were present in countries like Korea and Japan, where people uh, uh, really. Um, had a lot of reason to well, play games in Korea, for example. We'll talk more about that later. Now, let me set this in the context of what's going on in telecom, which hasn't been a very happy story in recent years. If you look at what's happened in the telecom industry, a failure of these CLECs, these competitive local access, uh, uh, local, uh, access carriers, that, uh, local exchange carriers that, that were promoted by the FCC in the Telecom Act of 1996, um, the long-distance carriers, you know, they stopped making money. There was a big debt overhang. And all of the telephone companies in the world now are losing landlines. First time in history. They always grew landlines, and now the people are saying take them back. They're switching to, uh, to cellular, to wireless, and, um, uh, and the Internet's taking over some of this, too. So they're all losing uh, landlines. The stock market went through a big bubble and then collapsed, particularly in telecom. Trillions of dollars were lost, uh, virtual dollars, in, in, the, uh, in the bubble burst of, of telecom. And the equipment industry uh, loosened here in New Jersey, Alcatel and others, uh, Nortel, um, really had to uh, collapse is a bad word, but they, they went down a long way. R&D slowed down, as we know very well in New Jersey, uh, for the last two years, I've chaired a study at the National Academy on the health of telecom research, and I'm not here to talk about that right now, but it's been pretty bad. And basically, all the research in telecom is now done at universities. Um, all of the industry has essentially gotten out of this business, and it's very sad for those of us, and there are some in this audience. In fact, a number of us were with uh, Bell Labs in the halcyon days when 
that was the place to be. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we didn't realize how good we had it then. And uh, now it's uh, not so good anymore. Uh, and the, the Internet was exploding at one time. It's still growing strongly, but it slowed down. So all this has sort of led to uh, bad times in the industry. And if you look at the economics of telecom, you don't like what you see. Bits are becoming a commodity. It's a commodity product. And you've got overcapacity in the long-haul plant. And in a commodity market, prices tend to the incremental cost, which in telecom is almost zero. The, the incremental cost of carrying more bits on the facilities is essentially zero. And um, a lot of high upfront costs and fast depreciation from Moore's Law, all these are bad things. And sometimes we talk about the future of the industry, and people say, you know, this is a lot like the airline industry. And everyone sort of looks around for a while, no one says anything, and then they change the subject and you know, go on. But, you know, this is not good, very good characteristics. So um, if you look at the telco revenues per minute and per call over the last 20 years, and maybe you can't see the chart, but you can see it goes down. <laughs> down by a lot. You know, uh, in spite of inflation and everything, this is straight down in, in revenue per minute. You know, it was... Uh, uh, it, it, revenue per call was about $11 in 1980, and now it's down to about a dollar and a half. And uh, those dollars aren't even worth as much. So uh, that's a, not a very pretty picture for the industry. Now, and, and if you look at then their capital spending of the telephone companies, uh, it's been straight down in recent years. And this reflects, this is the top of the food chain. It goes right down because... This says that they're not investing in their plant and they're not buying equipment from Lucent and the other vendors, and then Lucent can't afford as much research as they did before, and it just goes right down the, down the food chain. So this is the top of the food chain, and everything underneath it gets, gets really, really squeezed. And um, so uh, a friend of mine who's an industry analyst said, telecom is headed the way of DRAMs. Pricing is set by the most idiotic competitor. It's a race to the bottom. You know, uh, and so, you know, I wonder how low can it go? Um, I remember when AT&T just a few years ago broke the 10, 10 cents a minute barrier, and now you get companies advertising penny a minute. You know, next I guess it'll be a mill a minute or, you know, I mean, what, you know? And um, so, you know, how, is there any bottom to this? And I think free, you know? <laughs> So you've got Skype, it's just become very popular now. It, you know, you can get, download Skype, and there have been 50 million downloads of it or something like that, you know, and you can make free telephone calls. Um, and um, then we've got um, Wi-Fi spots around all around the country. So I've really gotten to the point where I expect Internet access to be free. You know, when I travel... I take this laptop that didn't work tonight, and, uh, you know, I point it out the window of my hotel room, and, you know, I expect to get free access. And I, whenever I go to a meeting, there's free Wi-Fi. A lot of hotels have it free now. Um, air, the, a number of airports have it free, and uh, I can't, you know, I just wouldn't pay for it. I, I, has anyone actually seen anyone at McDonald's logging in paying for their service? Uh, even at Starbucks, I really don't. You know, see, so I don't know what the business plan 
for Wi-Fi is, but whatever it is, it isn't working. Um, and I've just developed this personal expectation that it's free. Now, I don't know how this works, because how does it work that we can all be get it free, and who pays for the infrastructure out there? You know, so I, you know, it, here I am, I've spent my career in the industry, and I expect it to be free now, and I, who pays for all the guys like me that used to be there? <laughs> uh, it, you know, and, uh, and there, there are models where you embed this, like the hotel has to somehow put it on the room charge and stuff like that. But, uh, but this is what's going on. It's, it's a very disturbing story, and people are looking for business models of how. So in this context, broadband is seen as the salvation of, 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 of the telephone uh, companies. And um, uh, it's kind of a paradox because midst all of this bad stuff, um, the business is growing like crazy. You know, it's a paradoxical that, that annual traffic growth is about 100%. What other business could get 100% growth in their product and lose money? <laughs> you know, how is this possible? And the annual growth of Internet users used to be 100%, still about 40%. Hey, that's a great growth. And yet, you know, the price deflation has, has overtaken this. And there's a strong wireless has taken off, great growth in that, and broadband, as we, as we just saw earlier with the stats, growing like crazy. In spite of all these things, the difficulties of the industry, and broadband is seen as the salvation. Now, this chart, though, is from a um, Korean telecom. It's a Korean telecom chart. And bear in mind, again, that Korea leads the uh, world in, uh, in broadband penetration. And, uh, but their problem is that this is getting saturated. You know, that after you give everybody broadband, what do you do? What is the next trick here? And so what they say, well, we have to make it faster. You know, broadband is not broad enough. So we've got to go from DSL to VDSL. You know, it's got to get more and more and more. And uh, we're going to talk about that. Let me review first the ways that, that we can get access. DSL, and pardon my cartoons here, like, but DSL, the telco runs a fiber out to some place in the, in the field that might be 1,000, 2,000 feet from your home. And then, and then uh, the regular telephone wires, the copper wires, go from from there to your home, and you have a modem to do this. Um, cable is, is similar, except that it's a shared medium, and you've got a coaxial cable, and that you share that cable with a number of other customers, maybe a couple hundred in your neighborhood, all are shared with the bandwidth on that coaxial cable. Now, what the, the cable people can do, though, is now they want to say, hey, we can get in the telephone business, because the same coax now that carries the broadband connection, we can stick a telephone on that. So we can get in the telephone business. Uh, and, of course, the telcos want to get in the cable business of bringing content to your home, and they want to take television there. Now, wireless has, uh, in recent years, capability of wireless is coming up a long way, and there are a number of people in rural areas uh, subscribe to wireless ISPs, and, and they get their uh, broadband Internet from wireless. And the, the champions of wireless say, hey, everything you can do with DSL and cable, we can now do wireless. Um, so um, if you look at, uh, and, and here's yet another way of doing it. 
the people with the power line say, hey, you know, we got wires that go all over the country. And they say that, you know, one of the big arguments is that um, not everybody in the world has a telephone. In fact, as we know, there are countries where the teledensity is like 1% in Africa and, and until recently in India and so forth. Um, but there's power lines everywhere. So I say, we have this u- ubiquity where we can bring this. And in the United States, the power companies who are interested in doing this. Now, in the power line, they've got this, um, this mid-voltage line, that, that medium-voltage line that runs along uh, the telephone poles, and there's a transformer that takes it off to your house. And uh, one way to, to do it is to um, have, like, a capacitor and, and just couple your broadband right onto the high-voltage line. Um, this does give you some pause for thought because if the capacitor breaks down, your house is suddenly wired for 10,000 volts. <laughs> Which, you know, not a good idea. So, I mean, so what they, they think they're going to do is they put a little uh, wireless thing on the line, on the telephone pole right outside your home, and go in with Wi-Fi into your home. And then they run their, um, uh, they run their uh, connection to this along the, along the, the high-voltage line. Uh, the problems with this, uh, the radio amateur is complaining a lot because they say, look, you know, you're putting this broadband connection on this long, long wire, which looks to us like an antenna. And it sure looks like this is going to interfere with everything. You know, it's going to radiate out. And the FCC has been kind of wrestling with this problem. But the FCC has an economic mo- motivation and they're working on the theory that right now you've got DSL and cable fighting it out. But if you had a third entrant, power lines, that changes the dynamics of the market, they claim. And that would open up more competition, more multimodal competition, and would make this better. So they, they actually like this. But meanwhile, the power companies have sort of backed off a little in the U.S. about what they're going to do here. And they are providing free Internet service to their customers like in Allentown. And, and um, But basically what they're going to use the whole thing for is just controlling your own network, their own power network. So uh, your house is sort of, when you look around, it's under siege. All these are trying to get to your, your house to get your business. The satellite, which I'm not even going to talk about because basically it's, I don't think, too interested in our context. The power line people, DSL, cable people, and people that want to bring fiber all the way to your home, which I'll talk about in a minute. And what everybody wants to do, business-wise, is what they call the triple play. This is the great prize, you know, voice, data, and video. If they can lump them all together and get that business, they can make money. You know, if, you, if, if one person gives you your, if you get your television from the cable company and you get your, your data from the telephone company, they all have a hard time making money. But if they can get the, um, uh, get the, the triple play that they all talk about, that's, that's what they want. Um, so let's look at the future of these technologies very briefly. They all want to go up and up and up in data rate. Right now you've got DSL, which is about one megabit. And what they want to do is they bring the fiber close to your home so that there's shorter loops involved. And they're developing very sophisticated modulation now for DSL modems and using multiple wire pairs. And there actually have been uh, demonstrations where they actually were able to get a gigabit for 100 feet or so. So I say, you know, we get the fiber a little closer. You know, we can go up and we can get close to a gigabit with DSL in, in, the, in the not too uh, immediate future. Well, in the next 
four or five years, let's say. Now, but the cable people say, you know, we're not slouches here either. You know, we're going to come up, and they have new standards for no, more sophisticated cable modems, and they say, we can, we're only using one channel right now. We've got 100 channels. We can give you a few more channels, and we can have fewer people sharing the coax, so there's more rates. And uh, the new standards for cable modems now uh, are standardized at about 42 megabits. So they're moving up a lot. Now, just as a calibration, at 40 megabits, you can get high-definition television down your, down your cable modem, a couple channels of, of that. So that's coming along. And, um, and then just recently, actually, has been a, 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 a turning of, of, uh, of events in fi bringing fiber all the way to your home. Um, and it, it really is, has a couple of, uh, of things that have starred this out. This is a recent press release. Buoyed by regulatory victories, Bell say fiber futures for real, doubts linger. And I, I would you know, vouch for all of those. But um, SBC, Verizon, Bell South, all of them now want to bring fiber to your home because what they, they sit there and they feel frustrated because they see cable going up and up, they see wireless coming along, and, and they say, you know, we have to make a, some kind of a preemptive strike here. And if we could ever bring a fiber out there, we'd win the game. I've always often said in the past that uh, having a fiber in your home is what God intended. But uh, the economics have never been right. It's a sunk cost investment. They put that fiber out to your home, and you say, I don't want it. It's, they lost their money, and, and it's a huge investment to run the fibers down all the streets and stuff like that. And it's always, it's never been to me a technological question, it's been an economic question as to whether this is possible or not. But things have changed recently somewhat. For one thing, fiber's gotten less expensive and copper's gotten more expensive. And the recent FCC ruling to try to stimulate fiber, the FCC has said that the telcos, if they put fiber within, um, I think, 500 feet or 100 feet of the home, uh, that they won't have to share it with anybody else. And that's a very important thing for them. So then they all said, well, you know, we can do it because now we'll, have, we'll, we'll own this. But it's a, it's a real investment decision. Now, each of the three telcos has a different strategy about how they want to do this. Uh, they all want to bring it out. Some of them want to bring it to your curb, not your home. Some want to bring it to the pedestal and exactly what services they offer. But Verizon is the most uh, aggressive on this, and they're, they're putting it in Dallas first for some reason. I don't know. We're here in New Jersey. Maybe they could bring it here, but they're doing it in Dallas first. But this is mostly Greenfield. It's new development housing, not your existing customer. Forget it. You're not going to have it for, for quite a while. Typical offering, though, yeah, of these new fiber in the home is five, five megabits downstream for $39 a month. So it's right in, in the cusp of what cable modems do today, but they say they're future-proof because in the future they can offer higher and higher rates because once they got the fiber out there, they have a gigabit capacity at your home as, as, as they implement it upstream. Uh, and wireless is no slouch here, and there's been tremendous uh, uh, development in wireless lately. Uh, it's taking off in rural areas. But the idea of having unlicensed spectrum, spectrum that you didn't have to pay for. I mean, the amazing thing to me was when they did the auctions of spectrum for 3G a couple years ago in Europe, that the price that was paid 
at auction to buy the spectrum would have put a fiber in every home in the UK. Wireless substitution. Um, so licensed spectrum is very expensive. It costs as much as fiber. But unlicensed spectrum is free. And so the economics is completely different. And uh, new uh, technological uh, developments have, have made that I just put one thing up on, on probably the biggest thing in wireless these days is what they call multiple input, multiple output. You have a number of antennas that transmit and a number of antennas that receive. But the antennas at these frequencies are very small little things, so a number of antennas would fit right in your cell phone. And then all these antennas have different propagation patterns, but, but they're all put together by very complicated signal processing in time and space at the receiver. It's a very powerful technique. And the wireless people say, you know, we can do a gigabit too. So everybody wants to bring a gigabit out to your home. So here's what's happening then. We get exponential progress in access speeds. It's just going up and up and up. And as you can see, we get web surfing up to a megabit or so, and then television and HDTV, and then what? And then what is the question? Now, I have two scenarios here. And one is the, that society needs or desires as much capacity as technology gives them. Technology is going to continue to give you more and more capacity. The question is, are we going to need it or want it? And one scenario is that societal desire will co-evolve to need more and more broadband capacity as technology gives it. But there is another one. What happens if we say, enough, we don't need any more? You know, and I know technology is going up to a gigabit, but we don't need it. You know, you know turn off the technology, that, that's enough. It's never happened before. It could, and I don't know which of these two, but there's tremendous difference in those. So let's face the question of what do we do with a gigabit anyway? Now, in the old days, when I started at Bell Labs, you know, broadband was going to be picture phone. And in the 1960s, the development of picture phone was a big thing. When I went there to Bell Labs, you know, this was tremendous development. We were all going to, you know, see each other and talk to each other on, on picture phone. It, used, it was an analog system, 6 megabits, 6 megahertz. It was megacycles in those days. Um, I actually had one of these on my desk for a while and used it, and I think I had the last one in the world. No one left to call, you know. <laughs> so, uh, and I didn't like it, frankly. The only one called was my boss, and I didn't want to see him. I didn't look at him all the time. That's really kind of bad. But uh, it was a persistent dream that we've had all through these years, and I don't want to go on about it, but, you know, the idea that, you know, we were going to have video telephones, and that was what was going to use the bandwidth. And today, um, you know, you can have a picture phone if you want. Web cameras are, you know, a dime a dozen out there, and there are lots of them out there. I got a kick out of Arthur Clarke's uh, book about the light of other days where he postulates the, he takes the webcam into a worm cam, and the idea is that society, uh, that everything is seen now. And it's almost what's happening. You've got cameras going all around now, and, uh, you know, it seems like nothing happens but what there isn't a camera there that sees it. Uh, some years ago, I had uh, my own idea. I, you know, I got a webcam. I didn't know what to do with it. 
So I thought that uh, I would put it in my backyard and focus it on my home to see if when I was traveling I could log in and see if my home was still there. And uh, that would be a comforting thing. And then I thought, no, I'll put it in the front hall where my little doggy sits and I'll focus it on him and I could see, I could see my dog and that would be very comforting when I was out on a trip. And then I came up with my great inspiration, the uh, dog cam. put the camera on top of my dog's head, and then I could tune in and see what my dog was seeing. Um, so, you know, you'd see, what is my dog doing? <laughs> and then I took this a step further. I thought, you know, you put a GPS in this, and then you, um, you make a law that every dog has to have one. And then, and then if anything's happening in the world, you tune in on the nearest dog. And see, so um, okay. Um, so video, you know, uh, other than television and so forth, you know, maybe there's there's other things. But in in Korea, for example, the broadband now is being used for online games, and there's it's a it's a tremendous thing that's happening with the with the realism and the, the massively populated, persistent worlds that, that are out there. Us old guys don't know much about this, but, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible when fictional characters are being sold on eBay to participate in these games and so forth, uh, that uh, it's, it's something to, to behold. And Defense Department, for example, and this actually slides from them, uh, interested in, you know, in simulating sociological conditions and, and uh, battle scenarios and trying to understand it through these kind of uh, gaming situations. And the, uh, it's interesting that the game community has gotten way ahead of the defense community in terms of the technology and what's, what's used here. But what do most people use broadband for today? A couple of years ago I gave a talk at Georgia Tech uh, to student body and um, most of them had broadband and I said, why do you have broadband? And the same answer echoed from all corners of the auditorium. Music download. That's what they all used it for. You know, it's funny, the industry has never had uh, a vision that came true about what broadband would be good for. The industry, it took 19-year-old Sean Fanning to invent Napster, to get peer-to-peer to... To, to start this all out. The industry didn't have a clue about that, and I think that the things that do come along in the future that use a lot of bandwidth will not come from industry. But basically, you have people out there in Kazaa and Morpheus and other Napster before then and so forth, and um, the dark net trading these, doing the dastardly deed of trading these copyrighted files. But actually, um, there were other people out there, were good people too doing this, and uh, I just took these stats from uh, a couple months ago or something like that on Kazaa. There were four and a half million users on at that moment, swapping files. Almost a billion files to be swapped. A fantastic kind of thing. And today, uh, statistics show that there are seven million users of music sharing at any given moment out there, all breaking the law or as we understand it. 
Now, this is a strange situation, isn't it, when you've got, at all instants, seven million people breaking the law. Um, and E-Donkey now has kicked Kazaa out of the number one spot. Um, but seven million people out there. Now, before Napster, of course, the industry didn't have to worry too much about copyrighted material because it was sort of isolated. You might share your CD with some friends or something like that. But that's as far as it went. But Napster put this all together and made a pervasive sharing possible. And then, uh, then the, in, the music industry started tearing their hair out. Now, I've heard it described, um, uh, the vision of the digital ubiquity, that after all, everything is just a pile of bits, whether it's a CD, whether it's books, whether it's a DVD, movie. You know, it's just a pile of bits. And so uh, it could be on your hard drive, but why should you even keep it if you can get it from the net at lightning speeds anytime you want it? Why keep anything? And so I argued with my son, and I, you know, I mean, um, why collect records, CDs? You know, why collect DVDs? Why collect books if you can get them at any instant? And I thought about it, and I thought, I still want to collect this stuff. And partly it's this urge to collect, but also I don't trust the people who own the copyrights to make this ubiquitously available. I don't trust them. And so I'm going to have to have them there on my hard drive, and that's the way things go, go right now. So um, if you look at um, the iPod, of course, is a tremendously popular product. Apple sold 6 million of them. And an iPod holds about 10,000 songs, and to legally buy those songs at 99 cents a, a, a song from the, um, from the legal file places would cost $10,000 to fill up your iPod. Now, there are um, 6 million of them out there. Most of them are filled. <laughs> Does this compute? If there are, you know, those are just iPods, but if you take clones and stuff, there are more than 10 million of them. If you fill them up legally, you're talking $100 billion. The annual revenues of the music industry are about $11 billion. So there's something really out of whack. What, who is filling up these iPods? Apple iTunes is by far the most popular legal source of music, and uh, they have now sold 100 million at 99 cents. And by the way, Apple only makes four cents on every, on every download. They have to give all the rest of the money to the, uh, to the music industry. Uh, so they, they make basically nothing. But at 100 million of them, that's only 16 per iPod. An iPod, of course, holds 10,000 songs. So where's the rest of them coming from? You know, so it's, it's, it, nothing here really computes. It's, it's, it's really strange. So, um, the music industry has gone through a number of, of, of uh, options here to see how they can stop this from happening. And the first, of course, is to get the courts to stop this from happening. And this has met with limited success. And the Grokster decision last year uh, was a key thing here. When, uh, when the music industry sold, sued Grokster, and Grokster was ruled to be uh, not... In not infringing. Grokster puts the software out there. He said, look it, it's like 
if a Chevrolet is used to rob a bank, I mean, it's not Chevy's fault. I mean, you know, they just made the car. Well, Grokster claims we just made the software. They did it, you know, downloaded these songs. So, but the courts agreed with them, and then it was, it was um, uh, appealed, and uh, uh, the next court uh, agreed also. But right now it's going to the Supreme Court, and uh, it's, uh, I think, 38 music companies are uh, asking for this to be appealed. They want uh, Grokster and other uh, file-sharing services to be ruled illegal. But uh, currently they are not illegal. Now, of course, one of the problems is that you know, Kazaa is located out there in Vanuatu, <laughs> where they're kind of hard to get your legal hands on them, you know. Uh, and some of the, the problems in this uh, pro- problems in this domain is this, you know, you, things can be offshore and they have different laws. And as far as I know, maybe they don't have any laws there at all. I don't know. <laughs> I'm hardly a, an expert on, on, on that. So... Um, that's not working out. So they said, all right, we'll sue the people. And, of course, they've had a bunch of suits, which is up to now 6,191 suits as of a week or so ago. And uh, a lot of suits here at Princeton, for example. And um, everyone has settled the suits without going to trial for about $3,000. And uh, the EFF been one organization has offered that they will pay the legal expenses of any person who wants to fight this, but nobody can fight it. Nobody can take it to, to court because the, 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 the damages are in the hundreds of millions of dollars that you could be liable for. And so it's too scary. So no one has ever taken it to court. And if you're picked out, you've got to pay up. Now, when, it's funny. If you look at it this way, um, there are about... Um, a uh, hundred million people. Well, no, let's 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 take let's say twenty million people are out there using these P2P files or doing this stuff. Okay, and they're suing. They've sued ten thousand. So what are your odds? Um, say twenty million at ten thousand. You know, it very very low. And I figured the the expected cost, if it's three thousand dollars per suit, is about fifteen cents. So at an expected cost of 15 cents, you can do all the downloading you want. However, you may be the person who has to pay $3,000. So my great idea is I can start an insurance company for 30 cents. (laughs) (laughs) So in a sense, I mean, we have, uh, you know, if if, if we could live with this, but of course they don't want to live with this. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of an absurd situation in a lot of, lot of ways. And now, of course, people are snatching movies out of the air. And uh, a lot of movies are now being swapped out there. And now the MPAA, the movie people, are, are out to stop this. And I was at a meeting a few years ago with Jack Valenti here in the middle. And oh, this guy is, is unbelievably powerful. I mean, I tried to argue with him. And I just I said, no, I, please, argue with somebody else. I can't take it. You know, he was... Guy is so forceful, and he has such power in Congress. It's amazing. Of course, he no longer heads the MPAA just now, but he says 350,000 movies are being illegally downloaded every day. If more homes had broadband access, we'd be in big trouble. He said something else, but I don't know. Here I am at Princeton. Um, And that was a couple years ago. But now there's a lot of stuff going on in this system called BitTorrent, where uh, you can get, if you want to download a movie or a television show, you go to BitTorrent, 
And pieces of that movie come from other people who have the, that movie, and, and they all flood them into you, and you put it back together again. And uh, BitTorrent now, according to a British web analysis firm, uh, accounts for 35% of all traffic on the Internet. And this dwarfs all the rest of the traffic on the Internet. BitTorrent alone. So here's the thing. What fills up that broadband connection? Copyrighted material. Movies. Because who else can generate gigabits of stuff? You're going to do that in your home? You click away at your keyboard? Forget it. It's going to be copyrighted material. And so we have this, this budding of heads of the people who own the copyrights that don't want this. And this is the thing that where broadband is really is going to, is running into, into, into big trouble. So, um, and now, so here's what the MPAA wants to do. This is very recent. We'll sue the guys that are swapping the movies now. So they'll get in the suing business. Um, eliminating, by the way, I thought this was cute. I got that from, so eliminating weapons of mass distribution. Um, but people are making money on piracy because why do people buy computers and big hard drives, MP3 players? I mean, they sold, they sold the 10 million iPods, blank CDs, TiVo, CD writers, all based on this swapping. So the electronics industry is making a lot of money on this. A lot of money is being made on file swapping. It just isn't the music industry that's making the money. And um, so the next thing is, well, okay, suits aren't working out really well. Um, and um, so let's get legislation to stop this. The courts haven't done us too well, so we'll get Congress to fix us up. And so in terms of, of influencing Congress, if you look at the influence, the recording industry, and Hillary Rosen used to be one of the most despised women in America, but she gave up the job and now has found religion somehow. Jack Valenti represented the motion picture industry. Uh, in the electronics industry, there's no particular person that, that really uh, shines out here, and they don't have very a lot of power in Congress, and the consumer has no power at all. So. In terms of legislative power, uh, the motion, the, the entertainment industry has a lot, and they have tried a succession of laws to try to stop this. And the, the most recent one, which was uh, introduced a, a couple months ago by Orrin Hatch, and well, I guess we don't have to worry about Dashiell anymore, but um, uh, it's called the Induce Act. Now, this is a brilliant piece of legislation. Fortunately, it's been shelved for the moment, but it's going to be resurrected any day. It makes it, uh, it, 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 this is, makes it illegal to induce other people to, for copyright infringement. Like, if you sell iPods, you are inducing other people to infringe. And people have argued that the Internet itself induces people to infringe. And so the electronics industry has lobbied very strongly against this, but there's a very powerful lobby lobbying for it to make it, you know, the, the intention or to, to induce other people to copyright infringes uh, is, is, you know, illegal. And you, so then there's a technical solution to this thing, and the technological solution is digital rights management. 
And um, the, uh, many of the major electronics companies have, have said they will support this in all the new products, HP, uh, Apple, and others that said, we will build this into our products. Basically, they had no choice because the entertainment industry wouldn't go along with them unless they did. So digital rights management is a cryptographic wrapper that specifies what you can do with that content, that uh, the bits that are there. For example, the content will expire after 30 days, or you can't copy this, or you may make three copies, or the content may only be used on this computer, or, or it cannot be burned with so anything. Whatever the rules are of how you can use the bits, that can be put into a cryptographic thing. Now, I don't like this very much personally myself for two reasons. First, that um, um, it, uh, it doesn't work very well, and second, it places the definition of, of fair use in the hands of the copyright holder. But as a, a, a case in point, um, John Johansson, who's known as DVD John, was a Norwegian teenager who wrote a program that defeated the, the uh, digital rights management on the, the DVDs that you buy. Now, ostensibly, he wrote this because he had a Linux computer and the DVDs only played on, on Windows. And he says, well, I gotta break the encryption so I can, I can do it. So he wrote a little program. And that program was placed on websites around the world and then it became the subject of a lot of court cases. Some in the US, but they kinda got diffused. But then finally he was sued in Norway under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act that they have there. And he was acquitted a year ago and the judge commented, and I think this is very interesting, you can't be convicted of breaking into your own property. But Hollywood disagrees. This is not his own property. He borrowed these bits. And this, you see, we get this fundamental divergence of opinion here. Now, you feel that when you go down and buy a DVD that you own it, that if you want to break it or melt it down, or I mean, you, ought, you ought to be able to do whatever you wanted to do with it. But Hollywood contend that, you know, you see the FBI warning, you know, when you, when you start up your DVD, FBI, I mean, what would we do without the FBI warning? You know, I mean, <laughs> what a joke, you know. I, <laughs> but anyway, you expect a knock on the door, you know. And it's John Ashcroft, you know, I mean. <laughs> so, uh, so it's interesting. Do you own those bits? Now, are you allowed to do whatever you want to? And one of the the arguments that, that legal people argue about is, are you allowed to break encryption for fair use? You would think it would be fair use to run your D, play your DVD on a Linux machine. But the way the Digital Millennium Copyright Act is, you're not allowed to do that. So um, the other thing is that this really doesn't work very well. Bruce Schneier, digital files, cannot be made uncopyable any more than water can be made not wet. Most of the digital rights management that the industry has come up with has been very quickly broken by some teenager somewhere in some ridiculously easy way. So that it doesn't work very well. But the other thing is this, this thing about if you take digital rights management and the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which says you're not allowed to reverse engineer or break encryption, you know, it puts the definition of, of fair use in the hands of the copyright holder. They have no incentive to give you fair use of, of, of their bits, and, and since they hold the cards, they can put digital rights management. I'm biased on this, aren't I? It's bad. Here I am, I'm in favor of anarchy, all right. Um, so, um, 
And now the Georgia Millennium Copyright Act, and I'm, I'm, I'm winding down here in just a minute or two, uh, a couple of interesting consequences of, uh, let me, I'm going to give you two instances of what's going on there that sort of point out the um, anomalies of this act. One is that Lexmark versus static control, which was just, um, it's still being litigated. But Lexmark, as you know, makes printers uh, and uh, ink check printers. And they have a, they, they want you to use their ink cartridges because we know that they make all their money from the ink cartridges. And so what they did was they put a little digital handshake that checks to see if you've got a Lexmark cartridge. And if you don't, ah, your printer's not going to work. So there was a, but a company called Static Control looked at it and said, hey, we can get around that. And we will sell our own ink cartridges that will shake hands with the Lexmark printers. So Lexmark sued them under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, said you're not allowed to break our encryption. You must use the Lexmark cartridges. It's still being litigated right now. Um, so, and the original court decision supported the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, said you're not allowed to do that. Now, here's another example. Um, skip over that. Can you use a third-party garage door transmitter? And again, you're, you're, you know, when you push your button to open your garage door, it puts out a digital code. And uh, a third party came along. We can make transmitters that do that. They said, ah, Digital Millennium Copyright Act, you're not allowed to do that. And so that is now in the U.S. Court of Appeals also. So you'd think these things were anti-competitive measures. But it remains to be seen how all this plays out. So it's, it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's kind of a mess. And there's a lot of discussion these days about copyright law, what's public benefit, and weighing that against private incentive. Now, just a, uh, there was a thoughtful essay that I saw, and I just wanted to um, sort of finish with some thoughts about and the music sharing thing. Um, and this is from an essay on the Internet by Tim O'Reilly. Obscurity is a far greater threat to most artists than piracy. The people who are pirated are the millionaires, the people who are making a lot of money with hit songs. Now, most artists, they just want people to hear this stuff. So obscurity is a greater threat than piracy. Piracy is progressive taxation. The people that are really popular are pirated. The people who aren't, you know, are, are, are less so. And that customers want to do the right thing, and that file-sharing networks don't threaten book, music, or film publishing. They threaten the existing publishers, the middle, the middlemen here. Um, so finally, uh, what are we going to do about this? I mean, my premise is that broadband really depends on having copyrighted material available, and yet we're just at loggerheads of what to do about it. And they have, there are three methods that have been used historically to solve this dilemma. The first is to have compulsory license to this, and it was used to, for jukeboxes. When jukeboxes first came out, they said, you know, well, you've got to have a copyright for every song you want to put in the jukebox. But they solved that by saying there's got to be compulsory licenses, that you have to license these people to do it. And cable TV, when cable TV first came out, they stole the, I'll use the word steal pejoratively here, they took the content off of the air and rebroadcast it on, on the cable. And that ca caused a lot of things. But they said, again, you have to be able to get license on that. The second thing is a voluntary or blanket license where you gather payments 
or you have actuarial tables, and that's used for the ASCAP when, when, the, when you hear songs on the radio. They don't count every song. They take statistical measurements and then distribute the royalties accordingly. And finally, expropriation. They just say the cost of society of excluding this technology is more than the cost of allowing it. And that was what happened in the Sony Betamax decision in the Supreme Court. You know, the, in, the movie industry wanted the, the VCR to be disallowed. And they said, you know, that, that's more cost than society can bear. And they said, tough. You know, we're going to let them do it. And then the, 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 the interesting thing is the movie industry ends up making more money on the VCRs than they made on, on the movies or anything else. But they went to the Supreme Court to try to stop it. So we've never solved the deadlock by outlawing a technology, which is what you know, a lot of people want to, in, the, in the entertainment industry want to do right now. So in summary, technology is evolving relentlessly toward higher access speeds. This great commercial competition about what technologies will, will triumph. Is it going to be fiber to your home? It's going to be DSL, cable. Everybody wants to get your whole business and then put the other people out of business. But it, it appears that if you're looking for who's going to fill up a gigabit pipe, that I don't see anything other than copyrighted material that's going to go out there and that there's, so far there's no resolution of the copyright wars. So that's a summary. Thank you very much for sitting here and listening to all this. Time for questions. Yes, there's one here. Uh, there is a microphone, so if you can wait. Um, I guess one thing that I've noticed, and you, you sort of touched on this earlier in the talk, is the cost that we're currently paying uh, for some of these broadband services tends to be out of line, like the, the cable service is about the same cost as the rest of the monthly cable, and uh, DSL is certainly quite a bit more expensive than just a plain old telephone line. Um, and and to, cap, to cap that, the service that one tends to get from some of the providers is uh, often less than satisfactory. Where, where do you see that going in the future? Well, in the U.S., we depend on the open, the free market to decide those things. Um, cable uh, came in and, and set a price in the first place, and then the telephone industry had to go along with it, even though it cost them more at that time. Uh, and cable probably picked that price based on that was what they charged for the, the rest of their things, 39 bucks or something like that, and it was right along at willingness to pay. And I agree with you that the service is, is, leaves a lot to be desired. How many people here have had trouble getting help or, or repairs? Or, how many have been frustrated with their, with their service? It's a lot of people. I would say 40% of the audience has had some, some problem. And uh, that's an expensive thing for them. Uh, to do, and I certainly have had my problems. So we de uh, my only answer to the question is that, that it leaves a lot to be desired right now, and uh, that's one reason why we want to promote competition in this, because that, that's the U.S. answer to things. If you had competition, that, that, that you would start going to the people who, got, who, who gave you cheaper and better service. And so far that hasn't happened, because most of us have only one choice so far about how you get broadband. For me, it's only, it's only cable. Uh, Verizon doesn't deem my neighborhood worthwhile. So 
But when there is competition, then you start to get that. Last week, I think the Times had an article about the Pentagon uh, coming up with their own web network at a cost that I don't remember exactly, but it's in the hundred of billions of dollars. Uh, in view of the evolving technology that you're talking about, what is it going to be different uh, other than exclusive use uh, by, by the Department of Defense? Well, you know, the, the Department of Defense has this uh, gigi, this, uh, this worldwide gigabit network that they're, that they're putting together, this global integrated grid that they call it. Uh, and it will use commercial technology, and I think the only differentiator will be the security structure that's put, put on it. Uh, so I think the, the gist of your question, I, I would ag agree with it, because I think it was more in the question, it was more of commentary on what they're doing. And, uh, uh, but the Pentagon does have a, um, uh, a rationale of depending on commercial technology for, for its communications these days. But uh, they are pretty hung up on security, and that's, that's a real differentiator here. Isn't it true that uh, if you look at, think about, about the fact about the 50s and 60s, uh, the telephone network did did saturate in terms of bit demand. It saturated 64 kilobits, right? And there was a long period of time in which there was no further demand, uh, further uh, need from uh, from at least from an individual subscriber point of view. I mean, it, it seems to me very logical that this thing will saturate at some point where video, uh, you know, at some bit of video rate, and then the band won't just go go on forever. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me once it happened once before. That could could be true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I really don't know, but um, it's true that. Telephone service did saturate. I mean, the great thing that Vail wanted to do was give everyone a telephone. That was the one-trick pony thing. We gave everyone a, a, a telephone, then we looked for something else to do. I recently wrote an article on, uh, on the, the great dreams of telecom. Uh, when I went to Bell Labs, I thought there were, there were three dreams that we had. We had Dick Tracy telephone, the picture phone, and then home information systems. And... Uh, all of those came true in one way or another, but never as we expected. But the thing that, that bothers me is today we don't seem to have any equivalent dreams at all. That you look ahead and you say, well, like we did it all, we can close up shop now and go home because there is no dream. I mean, we did the trick, Dick Tracy phone. You can have all the video phones you want now. Home information with the web was something far more than we ever dreamed of. And now we're fresh out of dreams. So, but isn't the dream now to have communications with the human out of the loop? For example, safe cars, uh, sensing bridges and tunnels, and uh, that's where we're going to use a lot of bandwidth. Uh, I don't think bridges want to say a lot. You know, I mean, uh, I, I'm. 
Big bridges have lots of sensors. Yeah, yeah, but sensors are low bandwidth things. I don't think gigabits are going to be necessary for that. I think you're really, and they don't, they don't change that much. If you look at how often do you have to interrogate a building or a bridge, you know, I mean, you're not talking a lot of bids here. This is, this, this does not seem to take gigabits to me. How about but, but however, there's a ubiquity here that I would agree with, I mean, as a dream. There's a ubiquity, but not, not a broadband necessity, in my opinion. Well, I've been wrong before, Stu. Yeah. You have the microphone, Stu. Can you use the microphone, please? Uh, you seem to be, uh, I mean, I wasn't clear what, what, what your position on this uh, is. You know, I, I had an opportunity to hear the position of uh, Time Warner. Of course, uh, you can imagine, you know, what they think about uh, file sharing, but but one of the arguments which uh, was brought up there is, that, for example, in countries like China or India, about 95% or 98% of music content is illegally distributed. Yeah. And essentially, you know, music industry is making no money. So it's not quite true, you know, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, that, that only the, the rich are being taxed. And, yeah. uh, so what kind of solution do you see, you know, for, for the okay. problem? Uh, I should have said what I, I think should be done. First. The mass copying, commercial copying, uh, I, I hold no brief for that. Uh, you know, I think they have to work out trade agreements that, that stop that. I, I, I agree with that. But what should we do here about the file copying? And my, my thought is that uh, I like the idea of a blanket license where there would be, I mean, I don't like the idea, but I think it's the only solution right now, where everyone would be free to swap files but there would be the statistical measurement of what files were being swapped, and there would be a pool of money generated through perhaps a tax on blank media or some other. Blank media probably is the best thing. And then that, that tax is distributed according to the statistical uh, analysis of the file swapping that's being done. Uh, I think that that's the only workable solution right now. Uh, people like the Electronic Freedom Foundation has... Um, uh, propose that all the everyone who wants to swap files pays five dollars a month. It goes into a big pool, and then you're 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 guaranteed not to be sued, and they use the money you know some way. The problem is that it has a lot of legal problems because um, back when RIAA tried to give people amnesty if you went and got a signed document and had it notarized and said that you will never file swap, that they would give you amnesty and you would, they would not sue you. The problem is that, that they don't hold all the copyrights and they cannot guarantee that you would not be sued. So it wasn't even legally, legally viable. So I, I think that, to me, the blanket license with some kind of a statistical measurement and distribution of funds would be the only, the only way that would be workable right now to do this. Yeah, i just tell you one little funny, funny story. Um, uh, Mitch Kapoor... Uh, was the writer of Lotus 123, and at one time that was a really popular program. He made a lot of money, uh, and it was ripped off. It was pirated in, out in the uh, Orient, and um, so he went. Uh, he was in Hong Kong, and he went to one of these software emporium place where you could buy anything for five dollars. And so he went up to the counter and he said, "I'd like to buy a copy of Lotus 123," and they said, "That'll be five dollars," you know, and 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 they 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 got a disc out and copied it and handed it to him. And, and he said, you know, I wrote this program. 
And the girl looks at him and says, but you still want to buy a copy? <laughs> All right, let's uh, thank uh, Bob Lackey once more. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.